0: Happy to welcome back Dave Herbert from season one. Of, you know, I was always happy to have um, agents come back and talk about significant cases in their career. Dave certainly had one uh, in early in his career uh, that is just fascinating. Um, it's the Valentine Underwood case, uh, who is a double murderer, and we're going to talk about that case today and how how significant a lot of issues, besides the fact that Underwood had just returned from Desert Storm. Desert Shield, Desert, Desert Storm to 29 Palms, Marine Corps Base, 29 Palms, where um, he would be involved in these double murders. So I've got the resident expert here, the case agent on that particular case, Dave Hurtberg. Dave, great to have you back, man, to talk about this really interesting case.
1: No, good morning, Lee, and thanks for having me back. Uh, Read, listen to our original <clears throat> report from the field and We talked uh, a bit about this, kind of touched on the edges of this investigation, so I thought I'd reach back out and uh, happy to do it, One, and uh, I really enjoyed doing the first uh, iteration and look forward to maybe focusing down. Uh, And a quick note on that, thanks for the intro. Um, This was just about two years, not to the day, but two years to the month uh, of my uh, graduation, if you will from uh, uh the training center and, and uh starting on and from august of 89 back to the field and this was august of uh t- excuse me 1991 uh so it was kind of a significant as a very young uh, agent still learning our craft uh mm-hmm. and in this kind of case uh if you uh, didn't grow up fast this would uh force you to as a good uh solid criminal investigator and especially uh a young special agent with NIS that uh, Yumi and Kathy all kind of started together. Uh, So this was a great case from a a, a professional development career uh, aspect of really learning our craft, Um, multi-jurisdictional, eventually went international, but across the country with leads and whatnot, but uh, a pretty significant case on it. And later on documented uh, uh, in a discovery channel, um, episode and uh well after 10 years um September of 01 back to uh nine bit of events of nine eleven that kind of brought that back to memory as well but uh, happy to discuss it this morning Lo- love to dive in here with you.
0: Well I gotta tell you you know we some of our best agents come out of the Marine Westfield office and uh, you know uh, 29 Palms a, a, as I do a lot of work there today at 29 Palms and Camp Pendleton some of our best agents come out of those offices because you get such significant cases I mean I think we're going to learn today that um, these are offices that have a unique jurisdiction um, where, you know, in a unique location in the country. And I think uh, that all kind of feeds into what happened with Valentine Underwood and uh, and some of the with the victims. And we're going to talk specifically about the victims today because it seems like they're always forgotten about in these types of cases. So so looking forward to talking about that.
1: No, and I I concur 100 percent with that. uh, from Camp Lejeune to Camp Pendleton and then uh, Marine Corps Air Ground Combat Center, 29 Palms, uh, I think we had a unique aspect of growing up as young agents. Um, and We can get into that, but the jurisdictional differences at Camp Pendleton, that shared command structure with our Marines at the 29 Palms, uh, was significant from federal exclusive to concurrent. Um, we dealt, uh, extensively, um, with the, uh, San Bernardino County Sheriff's Department, the local jurisdiction, uh, 29 Palms did not have a police department. Uh, they were contracted by the Sheriff's Department. We dealt with the FBI down in, um, uh, Palm Springs, but it was pretty much, uh, San Bernardino County Sheriff's Department and, uh, back in the day, NIS. And, uh, we would take calls and I had a phenomenal working relationship, uh, obviously with their substation. Uh, down in Joshua Tree, but certainly with their uh, main department. And in this case, their homicide uh, section and detectives uh, down in their headquarters in San Bernardino.
0: So, Dave, tell me about how this case came about. I mean, was it a duty call? Was it kind of thing? Did you get a call from the San Bernardino County Sheriff's Office regarding this particular suspect? Or how did this come about? Come about?
1: Yeah, very good. A little bit of all of the above. Uh, I was oh, duty. Wow. Okay on a, you know, we used to do, I think month or a week at a time In 29, we were a small NISRA resident agency. Uh, I had the duty that weekend and this was a Friday evening, you know, settling in for a quiet Friday night, got a phone call. Uh, and it was a little bit, um, uh, unusual in that there was a link from the local sheriff's department detectives or the, the substation detectives relative to one of our CID agents uh, that had heard about the case. And, uh, there was, uh, it kind of got off track a little bit from the get go because of, uh, uh, the victims involved, the victim's mother, uh, issues of weapons, uh, uh, concern about weapons things. And, and our, our young CID agent being trying to be aggressive forward leaning, uh, wanted to pass on some info he had about an event, um, that ended up being completely unrelated other than some of the players, uh, so, needless to say, got called by local uh, detectives, went down. We worked with them daily. Uh, so, went down, dealt with our CID office, our, uh, investigator, dealt with the Sheriff's Department, uh, eventually kind of s- sorted that issue out. And then, immediately, I responded to the uh, crime scenes, uh, an apartment uh, building, um, small apartment uh, in the city of 29 Palms, or I think it was an unincorporated area at the time met up with the local detectives and deputies uh and they immediately came to the point of wanting to identify two marines uh based on witnesses that identified what they believed to be marines and a vehicle with a license plate so other than a duty call uh from the the local detectives uh then immediately went out to pmo the provost marshal office and we started querying our um law enforcement databases to identify the owner or at least the driver of a vehicle that was identified at the apartment uh, prior to the discovery of our, our two victims, uh, uh, Rosalie Ortega and Mandy Scott.
0: Mm. So um, there are a lot of interesting aspects of this case. And um, first of all, tell me about the kind of the um, the working relationship you guys had with San Bernardino County Sheriff's Office and kind of the atmosphere. What's it like to work in a place like 29 Palms?
1: Yeah, it's uh, uh, from our carrying on from our previous uh, evolution on this, uh, Lee. Uh, it is a little bit of uh, one ranger, one riot. You're alone and unafraid. Uh, when I started at 29, we had a, a, a resident agency of our at the time SAC. And uh, I believe I was the third agent in Um Dan Smith and Beth Iorio. And then we had a Marine agent, Pete Garza. So there were, and then a, a fraud agent, Gary Witt. So if you will, a uh, crew of five, uh, and a supervisor, uh, for a Marine Corps base of, I uh, probably 25, uh, 24, 25,000 Marines and, uh, active duty sailors and dependents. Um, As uh, our base was not federal exclusive uh, jurisdiction, we had to deal with the local authorities, in this case, San Bernardino County Sheriff's Department. Uh, We had a, um, you know, not just first name basis, but uh, in a a friendship and a camaraderie in that thin blue line. uh, We knew the deputies and certainly knew the detectives. And there were very few cases, whether they occurred on base, uh, occurred off base or out in town, um, that we didn't have a working relationship uh, or an obligation to work closely with the Sheriff's Department. And and in this case, with the local detectives, Uh, this was my first instance, uh, again, August, 1991. The event was August 2nd, discovery of these two young ladies uh, victims um, with the San Bernardino County Sheriff's homicide uh, uh, detectives. Uh, For a little background, Lee, when you talk about that two aspects, San Bernardino County, The the county proper uh, is the largest county, contiguous physical county in the United States, bigger than uh, some East Coast states. And 29 Palms by, again, geographic area of the base, boundaries, if you will, uh, is the largest Marine Corps base uh, in the country. Uh, So that's kind of the idea, Uh, not related to this case, but there was one, uh, sadly, another death, death investigation we conducted out in what we called the Delta Corridor of 29 Palms of the base, um, where we had to get to uh, the crime scene by helicopter. Uh, so it kind of gives you an idea. Uh, most deputies were individual uh, deputies in a vehicle. Um, a lot of times one or two on duty um, patrolling. Uh, that gives you the kind of the idea of what we had to deal with. Uh, a large number of people, an extremely large physical area, both the county uh, and then the Marine Corps base. So it was a it was, uh, even if we had terrible relations, we would be obligated to work closely with our uh, local law enforcement counterparts. But it, regardless of that, it was a phenomenal working relationship and uh, great learning as a, for me as a young investigator, young agent, uh, getting kind of thrown into the fire. Uh, now working with these crusty 18, 20, 22, 23 year uh, law enforcement veteran homicide detectives.
0: This is how you met Detective uh, Jimmy Palacio?
1: Yeah, Jimmy Palacios, uh, Tommy Franks, uh, and then and, uh, and for the life of me, I cannot think of Scott's name. And I try to research it. Uh, these were the kind of the, 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 the homicide unit uh, would have, a, they had a lieutenant over, a captain that was investigations, a lieutenant over their section, and a sergeant on each team, and then down usually a team of four to six uh, detectives always paired up. They did everything in tandem, uh, whether it's out on the scene, uh, running leads, obviously interviews or interrogations uh, were always done in teams. That's just the way their structure they operated in. So got to know those guys um, uh, maybe all too well. And, and a quick side note, Lee, but I think it's relevant to this discussion and, and how we operated as NIS agents. Um, uh, as it were and again it was sad we had a uh, another homicide almost uh, almost to the day one year later in 1992 uh Lenark Lockard who uh, by title as our ASAC and a really solid investigator uh took the duty call um we had one marine staff sergeant stab and kill his uh common law marine staff sergeant girlfriend I'm sorry and um the same homicide to take team uh, took that call, if you will. So a year later, when we we're still in the middle of the Underwood investigation, uh, we're now working a totally unrelated uh, second homicide uh, also occurred in town. Uh, so the Sheriff's Department had a primary jurisdiction, but Marine on Marine. So they called us straight away. And it was... Uh, uh, Kind No, it was, a, again, just showed the relationship we had of uh, I dove in and immediately started working with the detectives that we had been working very aggressively with on our case from uh, August of 91. That case occurred in August of 1992.
0: Okay. So, um, so we could we'll talk about Underwood quite a bit here today, but let's talk about the victims, um, sure. because like I said, I think they're often forgot about, but let's, Talk about the victims of Underwood and kind of the background on them.
1: Absolutely. Rosalie Ortega, the little 20-year-old Filipina lady, um, working, uh, wasn't a mother, but a single young lady, um, interacted with our Marines regularly, worked there in the city of 29 Palms, uh, had an apartment, uh, and one of her young friends Uh, was a uh, young lady by the name of Mandy Scott. Mandy was 15 years old uh, when she was uh, stabbed and killed uh, by Underwood uh, in August, uh, 91. Um, Mandy's mom, a young lady named Debbie McMaster uh, was a local business owner, ran a restaurant and uh, and then eventually a couple of little bars in town. And we got to know her through the deputies and obviously very closely through this investigation. Uh, Mandy was just a a local girl um, part of a group from the local uh, uh, excuse me middle school junior high uh, uh, the uh, front porch girls I think they called themselves and it was just a group of girls kind of looked after each other um, you know as uh, young teenagers growing up in a kind of a rough and tumble town that 29 palms was with uh, you know 20 24 25,000 marines uh in a kind of distant community we were about a, an hour drive uh 45 to 60 miles as a crow flies from palm springs a uh, mm-hmm. couple hours away from oceanside camp pendleton and then whether you're going to los angeles or san diego two and a half three hour drive so we were a little bit out in the truly in the middle of the mojave desert so i'm sure a young uh, teenager growing up, maybe not driving yet, uh, not a lot of a- entertainment or activities. Uh, girls, uh, young girls especially, had to be uh, very close with their friends and kind of almost protect each other. Uh, you know, not to say the Marines were out there uh, scavenging around, but uh, that was always a bit of a concern with, you know, these young 18, 19, 20 year old Marines. Uh, also not a lot of entertainment in the town. We had some rough and tumble bars and clubs and things like that, but there wasn't a lot of entertainment until you traveled a, a couple hours away. Um, so that was kind of the nature of, uh, you know, single young ladies, uh, in town to kind of have to protect and looked after themselves. And Mandy was part of that, a group like that from her school.
0: Interesting. So it's, it's interesting, the fact that you have to have that type of um, relationship in 1991, you know, with, with a friend that, uh, protect each other. It's almost as if we tell the buddy system, uh, to our military members when they go out on a foreign country. Um, uh, it, it must've be something like that, right?
1: Uh, absolutely. Very much. So, um, you know, we, uh, 20 palms was a smaller community, Joshua tree down the road and then, uh, Yucca Valley. Uh, but these are kind of, you know, uh, desert communities, very much, a lot of retired military members, Um, it it was quite a variety of personalities, uh, in the area, uh, back when you talk about 1990, 91, uh, and it's separate from kind of the military communities that we know all too well. Um, 20 and palms had a bit of a reputation, right? Wrongfully, uh, about, you know, uh, methamphetamine, um, cooking sites and, and, and small little, uh patches of uh, ground where you have a small home or a, an abandoned home and people would set up these uh, mar- marijuana excuse me these methamphetamine uh, uh, areas or whatnot uh, kind of a quick background of 29 it actually kind of developed as a town the uh, Chimaweva Indians founded it there were a the oasis that had 29 palms in it and that's the origin of the name but it, it it uh, and I apologize. I don't remember the the lore, or the history. There was a uh, a doctor, local doctor, um, who was treating um, World War One veterans, many that had suffered uh, uh, the mustard gas that was used in the trench warfare of World War One between uh, 1915 1918, and uh, some a lot of Marines uh, and probably some Army veterans. And he found that the air quality at the time again we're talking you know over hundred years ago now was um, as best you could find in the United States to uh, help these uh, veterans uh, recover from the damage their lungs and respiratory systems uh, took from the, from the First World War. Uh, so he came out and made arrangements to treat these folks. Um, and, uh, you know, we didn't, have, I don't believe we had a Veterans Administration then, but whatever the government entity that would give these veterans plots of land for and them so- to settle. And that's how 29 Palms kind of became, uh, you know, grew up as a as a town fo- with related to the Marine Corps, related to uh, 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 veterans and whatnot. Uh, the, the lore continuing in uh, into the 40s, early 40s. And there's still uh, um, treasure hunters that will find different caches, if you will, uh, that that uh, General Patton. Uh, Also trained uh, in the in the early and mid and late 30s prior to World War II, and that he used this very vast and open desert to train his uh, um, tank units and his mobile, you know, his units that then fought in World War II. Uh, That was in the same area. wasn't formally a base uh, that he used, but the desert uh, because it was open, he could fire his big weapons and and not be around civilization or other communities, if you will. So that. Developed and then the Marine Corps obviously used it uh, extensively for their live fire training uh, that they couldn't use other facilities because of group you know communities and civilian growth around them uh, where the Mojave Desert was fairly open as the base uh, when when I was there was about a thousand square miles uh, in total.
0: So the base really became important just before Desert Shield Desert Storm because you would need units to be prepared to operate in a desert environment, right?
1: Absolutely. Um, they actually set up a command specific, uh, and I might have the acronym wrong, so bear with me a little bit of distance and uh, time and uh, memory loss of uh, SWAT-G, some of the like Southwest Asia training group, um, and uh, Marines and sailors, and in some case, Air Force and Army personnel would come out to 29 Palms uh, this goes with the uh, invasion, Saddam Hussein's invasion uh, of Kuwait, 1990, and uh, for acclimatization. So uh, our desert was, we would go in July, August, not much humidity, but uh, temperatures anywhere from 115 degrees up until, let's say, uh, 120 to 123, 124 degrees. So uh, they fired up this command for folks to come out and get used to the desert to then head over to uh, Saudi Arabia uh, in the defense.
0: Armor operating, artillery in that environment can be a challenge, I'm sure.
1: Significant. uh, Used to have what we call desert hours, where they would train, you know, four in the morning to two, um, noon, one, two in the afternoon, as uh, simply doing maintaining on the vehicles would be too difficult because the emanating heat uh, and heard of stories of, you know, young maintainers, be it, uh, our vehicles, artillery pieces, aircraft, uh, would maybe put down a wrench or, a, you know, a drill or something and then couldn't pick it up cause it would get so hot. Um, so they had to shift working hours and, you know, the infamous nine to five would have to shift to the left to early in the morning to a- end of work day of noon, one, two o'clock maybe. Cause two, three, four in the afternoon with the heat and the, the sun blasting down, it became almost dangerous, not just from a hydration and personnel, but even the equipment you're working on.
0: So that sets up kind of the, um, where we, where we begin our story with both Valentine Underwood. So he's a, um, a Marine and he returns from desert storm and I'll let you take it from there.
1: Very good. Thank you. Yeah. He was a young Marine Lance corporal, uh, enlisted third pay grade. Uh, assigned to 3rd Battalion, 11th Marines, an artillery unit. Uh, It's just enlisted uh, not too many months uh, and and, uh, assigned out to 311 at 29 Palms uh, just prior to uh, uh, or around the time of, uh, again, Saddam Hussein's invasion of Kuwait. And uh, some of our Marines from 29 Palms were the first Marines to get into Saudi Arabia. Uh, and start a line of defense well prior to uh, you know shifting from Desert Shield to Desert Storm. Uh, armor, as our Marines were some of the first in in August and September of 90, 1990, uh, they were also some of the first ones out uh, after the successful invasion and uh, liberation of Kuwait. Uh, so we start seeing our re- Marines return in uh, April, uh, in May of nineteen ninety one. Uh, Got to know uh, Val. I personally got to know Underwood as we played on a recreational basketball team in the city of Twenty Nine Palms. Supported the the park and rec department. uh, Put together a team that had a mix of civilians, myself, and another agent, and then a number of uh, uh, Marines that we knew from the base and 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 playing rec basketball uh, on base. Uh, And as we went out, now we're talking, you know, late April, early May, uh, even into mid May. Uh, one of our teammates asked, uh, "Hey, I've got a guy, former college ball player. Can I bring him along?" So we, we, we of course uh, said yes. Came out, and that's when we first myself and another agent, especially Dan Smith, met uh, Valentine Underwood. Um, six foot six back then, about two hundred fifteen pounds, and marine lean. Um, you know, solid young, uh, you know, built individual. Had played at Lubbock Christian College in Lubbock, Texas. Uh, In 1985, 86 time period. Um, So we got to know uh, Underwood uh, again from a a recreation standpoint um, and then went forward from there. If you want me to continue on to the actual uh, murder uh, events,
0: well, let's talk about um, as far as Underwood is, uh, you know, kind of his background kind of set up his personality of why he would be a suspect in a case like this.
1: Absolutely. Um, I'll answer that two ways, if I can, Lee. Uh, we, we, from the investigation and and dealing with leads and issues, you know, you always deal with the family, even of the suspects, certainly of the victim, victims in this case. We um, found his mom was a long time and um, positive employee of the Smithsonian Institute in Washington D.C. We later learned uh, he had an uncle who was an Army veteran, a uh, fairly senior enlisted uh, member, um, he grew up in and around, uh, I believe it was Southern Maryland area, uh, not Northern Virginia, but, uh, and so around the district of Columbia, um, went to college, um, again, played basketball on scholarship at Lubbock Christian college, later Lubbock Christian university. Um, and and then on the flip side, uh, the getting diving right into the case, August 2nd, 1991, Uh, as we mentioned a little bit earlier, our relationship with the sheriff's department, uh, the initial suspects, there were two young Marines, uh, we identified them as Marines, one by a vehicle and two, they were playing, uh, it was either hearts or spades, a card game. And they had a score sheet, uh, on a small little table of four. And, um, we found initials uh we tracked those initials down one of the sets of initials matched the registered owner of the vehicle that uh, the sheriff's department had identified by initially responding deputies and then uh, subsequently to uh the detectives that got involved um one of those two uh, individuals uh, both marines in different units no connection or relation to uh to underwood um actually he returned to the scene and was if you will i won't say a boyfriend but an acquaintance uh uh, of, of victim, uh, Rosie Ortega, and they had been playing cards. And so we, and literally used initials on the score sheet, um, you know, LCDH, uh, type deal. Um, but had, he had returned, uh, to the scene, um, uh, and apologized. This was a third individual, another Marine, uh, again, who was kind of a boyfriend, uh, acquaintance of Rosalie and came out and, and discovered the two young ladies, uh, clearly deceased, uh, multiple stab victims. One had a, a, a modified ligature. Uh, Mandy had a ligature around her neck, things along those lines. So he, he made the call. Uh, he was fairly quickly cleared as not as a suspect, um, very cooperative, quite shaken up. Um, uh, but then from that, we identified these initials, another vehicle that was uh, on the scene. And that was my first involvement uh, getting into our on-base access, uh, vehicle access uh, databases. We identified the two young Marines. Uh, It was a Friday evening, so they had actually been released on Liberty, you know, weekend time off. Uh, Both were in the um, Oceanside, Camp Pendleton area, which was fairly common for our Marines. Uh, We had the command, it was one of our first kind of decision vectors. Do we, if they were were potentially our first two suspects, so do we go track them down? Do we send agents to find them uh, do we ask the command to simply uh revoke or recall recall them uh not as suspects but as just hey we, we have issues back on the base you need to come on back uh so those are some of the initial uh um decision points uh one of my first activities after the duty call and tracking this uh vehicle down um was then we'd wanted to identify or excuse me obtain uh a search warrant and again a second very initial decision and we're six eight ten hours into this if that was we obtained a command authorized search of one of the two uh young men young marines uh, barracks room um and if you've seen a divert a little bit but bear with me i think it's relevant if you have watched the movie a few good men with oh, yeah. tom cruise One of the classic scenes, he goes in uh, with his bat, wants to have his happy bat, you know, I'm flipping my pen, and he goes into his closet, and his civilian clothes is in complete disarray, and his uh, military uniform is perfect, aligned, starched, in order, you dress uniforms down to, you know, working uniforms, et cetera. When we went into this young Marine's, barracks room, it looked like Tom Cruise's, the character, uh, <laughs> perfectly aligned. Um, everything was in complete order. Uh, bed was made, drawers, you know, folded up socks, folded up <laughs> underwear. And, and I remember there was a young lieutenant uh, that was the officer of the day, and he accompanied us, as this was pretty significant now, and the command was in the process of recalling these two young Marines. Um, and so we actually conducted the search without them present and uh if you will uh, you know unaccompanied um and i remember kind of looking at the marine and the detectives just it didn't mean anything to the detectives you know some had military background but it, it, to us it was significant of hey this is a squared away marine uh interesting side note i know we'll, i'll circle back i promise you to underwood um one of the items in there was a a light colored i mean let's call it a beige sweater i'm wearing a little pullover sweater uh, or cool temperatures this in the morning and it had a huge I mean significant reddish stain on it and, and that was a bit of an eye opener of this wow clearly a squared away marine his barracks room was in perfect order and we undercovered or discovered as part of the search warrant this uh, civilian item of clothing <laughs> with a very large reddish stain on there Very clear. Click quickly with the the forensic team that accompanied homicide determined it was not blood in any way. Uh, I don't remember what it was, some kind of either cleaning solution or uh, which was probably added on a Kool-Aid, for lack of a better term. Uh, Wrapping that up, those two young Marines returned. They were both interrogated uh, by the Sheriff's Department solely. We were not involved, myself nor NIS was involved. And they were very quickly uh, cleared uh, as suspects and um very cooperative i believe one if not both took polygraph examinations separate from that uh, their alibis cleared as far as their timeline of being in the apartment they acknowledged that they played cards this card game they were on the score sheet luckily uh one of the two identified a another individual uh, tall thin uh marine african american marine uh, by the name of val v a l who came out, uh, played cards with him a little bit. We also found Val on the, another score sheet of a card game or dominoes game they were playing. And uh, these first two young Marines identified that Val was uh, fairly aggressive, uh, specifically with Mandy, uh, uh, kind of forward, um, you know, flirtatious, uh, almost to the point of being inappropriate so we had our first our second lead after these other two marines from their initials of tracking down val well interesting point good bad or otherwise and and i I, i'm not going to claim to be sherlock holmes or uh uh the great uh, phenomenal investigator um but a second part is as now we transition and one of the things i noted um when I first went to the scene, so before we were tracking down the, these two other Marines, is there was a bloody uh, uh, hand or palm, what appeared to be palm and maybe fingerprints. Uh, and it was up on the wall. Uh, the sheriff's department cut it out. It was later identified to be the crime suspect. Uh, and it was right above uh, where Mandy was uh, in situ or uh, deceased in, in the apartment. And, and the thing of note is I knew of Val, uh, uh, Valentine Underwood from our recreational basketball days, who was six foot, six inches tall. The uh, I'm six foot you, Lee, I think you're a, an inch or two taller than me, but where you, know, you might put a hand leaning against the walls, maybe a shoulder height up or down a little bit, we would be, you know, four and a half to five, five feet plus. This one was way up on the wall. <laughs> and I kind of half jokingly uh, said, um, Hey, you're looking for Valentine Underwood. Oh, wow. um, uh, our initial uh, district attorney we need to take a break
0: no no i'm just i know it's i was i was just interested it's like what as soon as you said it, I was like what oh. got it
1: exactly <laughs> yeah uh, the, the linda root was a, uh, a deputy district attorney at our local uh san marino county uh, district attorney's office she was on scene um the detectors were on scene it was kind of funny you know here i am You know, two years on from uh, graduation, our training academy, uh, twenty-six years old, doing basic—you know—grand theft auto, forgery cases, maybe some assault, simple stuff. From and and here, these like we all were,
0: like we all were,
1: yeah. A a, a crusty homicide detective was kind of like, "Okay, kid, whatever you say." Um, (laughs) And part of it was, you know, the 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 name Val on the score sheet, but more importantly, where this. Uh, bloody portion that we all you know was wasn't a full print but it was fairly recognizable as a palm or handprint on the wall and in blood uh they cut it out um obviously did forensics on it with dna even in you know and now we're you know 30 plus years ago um but as things went um they cleared these two young marines the next phone call i got uh, from the homicide detective of hey, can we go further identify and track down Valentine Underwood? And then that's kind of where my involvement uh, and even uh, fellow agents uh, between Pendleton and San Diego got more heavily involved. You know, we had done some identifying for them, pretty basic investigative stuff uh, obtained and uh, just walked them through a command search of the first two uh, individuals that were suspects or persons of interest, you might call it, and then who were cleared. Uh, and now we're going to move to the second level of suspects, if you will. And that, that became, excuse me, uh, Val or Val, who we later identified as Valentine Underwood.
0: So Dave was, um, when, when you're looking at those notes uh, for the card game was Val's initials on there,
1: VU. uh, it, 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 um, yeah, Val. And it w- instead of initials, for whatever reason, I don't remember if it was different handwriting. You know, typically you have one person keeps score, whatever you're playing. Uh, but it was written as Val. And again, one of two, two other uh, Marines present identified that he identified himself as Val. So we kind of linked those two uh, again when he was being aggressive to Mandy. Uh, he did play cards for a little bit with him. And I think our other Marines had departed, but they identified that he had showed up. And it might have been a different sheet of paper, uh, but instead of initials, uh, it it had the name Val, V-A-L, on it. It wasn't, uh, you know, V-U or V-E-U, Valentine Edward Underwood. Uh, It was specifically Val, which we kind of thought was interesting. It didn't mean anything in the long term, uh, but that it was, very, you know, uh, Valentine's a a bit of a unique name, I guess, other than someone born on uh, February 14th. Uh, But you
0: have a bloody latent print on the wall uh, uh, at a a certain height, plus this uh, initial, I mean, the name, Val, uh, certainly some interesting uh, aspects to the case there.
1: Very very distinct leads. Uh, So then that's why my second aspect when you talk about getting involved was, okay. let's go. Let's go find, uh, discuss, talk with and and interview, interrogate Valentine Underwood. Knowing his background, uh, I started with his command. They were very third battalion, 11th Marines very quickly said, yeah, he went and played, uh, with the base basketball team and they had a, a, all services, um, tournament. Uh, and it was either, I believe it was at Norton air force base in San Bernardino. We, uh, uh, tracked down some of the other teammates. One from one of the first ones was a corpsman, uh, Navy corpsman, uh, who also played on the team and had, uh, Identified that, that Valentine uh, or under, Lance Corporal Underwood showed up at the tournament separate from the rest of the team. He had been given a ride uh, by another by, by someone uh, and he had shown up with a fairly large and significant wound, specifically a cut or laceration on his left inside palm. Again, inside knowledge, not being Sherlock Holmes, Dan Smith, another agent, myself had played basketball. We knew he was left or strong. A uh, strong hand was his left hand, the way he played basketball. Uh, so again, another significant point. Fairly quickly here, uh, the Corman basically said he had treated him. Said it was way beyond just you know a cut where he could put a band aid or even some stitches. Sent him to a local the clinic on base uh and the clinic told him this was a more significant injury uh and they sent him to balboa naval hospital in san diego that both you and i know quite well and um that was the if you will second and a half to be uh lead was to contact our agents um you and i both well knew um uh, we had an agent permanently assigned to balboa uh sally flo wilson um so uh, i reached out to uh, uh the supervisor uh, Joel Gossett from the San Diego office uh, we were regions back then uh, and Joel then uh, immediately uh, got Sally engaged to try to track down and find just locate uh, Valentine Underwood and uh, that was the next stage of the investigation
0: right So what did they um, so he goes all the way down to Balboa hospital 29 palms he's being treated for his hand injury when you did were you able to observe the hand injury before? he left
1: no no we didn't have an opportunity to see that um and we all, I saw it in pictures mm-hmm. uh and uh, uh subsequently in descriptions of uh, the hand injury and what his explanation was when he was uh, subsequently contacted and interviewed uh by uh, the homicide detectives from San Bernardino County um, what was story on that hand injury it was it was interesting. It, uh, there were multiple. Uh, this is where again, but from an investigative standpoint, as as we call it, a clue, um, <laughs> one of them was uh, that he had uh, slapped the backboard uh, playing ball and had cut it at, at our local gym, uh, practicing or or prior to uh, you know, going down to to Norton, and another one, and the one he kind of stuck with closer uh was that he was cleaning his barracks room friday morning uh prior to you know knowing he was going to go to work and then subsequently head down with the team to go play basketball this uh, all-services tournament and that he had reached into his trash can kind of a standard military you know uh small round uh trash can that was in every barracks on base and that he had reached in to the trash can, trying to clean things and cut himself on a, a razor or straight razor was his explanation. Mm-hmm. Um, so those later became aspects uh, in, uh, it, whether, you know, from his standpoint would have been, you know, exculpatory um, but that the detectives needed to eliminate his possibilities. Uh, But that was his explanation, two explanations as their interrogation went on. And then they came back to us to say, hey, can we prove or disprove this? Um, But it was pretty significant wound uh, on, again, his inside left palm.
0: Was it a belief that that was a a defensive injury um, when uh, in any kind of confrontation he could have been in? Uh,
1: No, actually, believe it or not, this is what became a significant legal issue. Um, as I mentioned just a little bit ago, Linda Root, one of our deputy district attorneys who we worked with very closely uh, w- in the county when, when we had uh, jurisdictional issues and, and cases that we had to refer to the sheriff's department. Um, or excuse me, the d- local district attorney's office. Linda Root was on uh, uh, on scene. And uh, as detectives were and deputies were doing the initial, if you will, crime scene, um, there was a bloody towel. Uh, in an outside trash can at the apartment, at Rosalie's uh, apartment. And in addition to that, they also located uh, basically a kitchen knife, Um, not a hunting knife or carving knife that would have a hilt on it, Um, you know, a buoy knife, if you will. And this knife they located uh, was about a standard kitchen knife, uh, serrated on one end, steak knife for lack of a better term. Uh, I want to say it was about four or five inches in length, did not have any kind of hilt. So it became uh, a suspicion that he had used this knife was blood covered and of all things had a footprint on it that was later uh, identified uh, forensically uh, linking to a a pair of shoes that Underwood had. Uh, But this knife was standard kind of, uh, you know, wood handle with no hilt. And the belief was in the the very stabby motions, uh, the knife would have slipped down and, and cut him. Uh, in the course of the, the, the murder.
0: Wow. So, um, so let me go back to, we have uh, Rosalie was found in this crime scene. Um, Mandy Scott, was she, uh, I'm just trying to see what's the connection to the two cases.
1: Yeah, sorry. No, uh, it was a two room apartment, uh, three, if you will, as you come in was fairly small, kind of a kitchen eating area. That's the table that they were where they were playing this card game. Uh, maybe a sitting area kind of a family or living room kind of adjoining you would go through a secondary door and that was into kind of the one bedroom it was a one-bedroom apartment Uh, within that bedroom then you had a a, you know closet so I won't call it a hallway but a small area that then led into the the bathroom or the the one uh, bathroom main bathroom off the bedroom Uh, and, and the initial crime scene um, Mandy was located uh, kind of in that little hallway, for lack of a better term, leading between the bedroom and the bathroom. And Mandy was in the main bedroom, uh, kind of at a, a distant or adjoining wall. Uh, they were both in that back room. Uh, but when uh, the young marine that discovered them went in into the apartment, nobody there. Uh, clearly, people had been there based on the cards out the table, drinks, you know, sodas, beers, things along those lines. And then went into the back bedroom. Uh, and then initially noticed Mandy and he continued into the room. Um, I, I want to say he checked her pulse. and then from that point where he was in the room, he could then see uh, man, excuse me, Rosalie kind of around the corner for lack of a better term, uh, through this little small you know alcove uh, hallway between the bedroom and then the master bathroom and saw her uh, both covered in blood, um, clearly had uh, significant wounds to him. And then that's when uh, that young marine called nine one one. So they were both in the same room and in, in close proximity. And the handprint we mentioned was just above Mandy up on the wall, uh, almost just if you will, if someone were kind of picking themselves up or, or standing over her, if you will.
0: So um, as you as you guys have looked at this crime scene and you got an idea of who the Marines, these two Marines that were in the room with them. Um, What were their interviews like? What did they talk about when when you guys contacted them?
1: Um, And again, we didn't participate in that. They they were recalled. Uh, The Sheriff's Department uh, detectives investigate and homicide detectives uh, did those interviews on their own. Uh, We weren't present during that. that. That's why in the homicide team, detectives went and interviewed these two i believe they did forensics you know like a, with, with a gunshot you do gunshot residue tests in this case they were doing you know dna testing uh these fingerprinting uh looking for dna and then a different detectives came with us while we were kind of uh not contemporaneously but also doing that the search warrant in search of uh, uh one of the two barracks room so I we didn't wondered, at, at first, go ahead please
0: i'm sorry. Um, so, I just, I'm wondering because the two Marines, I'm wondering if they put Valentine in the, um, in the apartment after they left.
1: They they, did. they they um, acknowledged um, playing cards to Rosalie, um, being at the, the apartment, um, they acknowledged one of their vehicles. That's the one we tracked down departing the scene. But before they left, that, that, and part of it, it was kind of an uncomfortable area and they felt bad. Uh, of leaving uh, the girls out there with Underwood who they thought was being, you know, again, I got my word, no, not theirs aggressive, or maybe a little bit overly forward, specifically with Mandy, who they knew was 15. Um, And Rosalie was a a rather smaller female. um, And and Underwood is a fairly imposing uh, figure, if you will, but they did put Val on the scene. They didn't know him. Um, but they recognized him as a Marine who identified himself as Val. So, but their, their interviews, what we heard talking to the Texas, they were cooperative, uh, fairly open, and they felt they, they were giving, uh, you know, valid stories of being present, having some drinks, playing cards, and then the whole scenario with Val coming onto the scene and then these two departing because they wanted to leave and then head down, you know, on liberty, if you will, or on, on, for a weekend off uh, duty and heading down to their respective homes in the Oceanside, uh, Southern California area.
0: So what happens to Val? Um, so you've contacted Joe Gossett and Sally Wilson down at uh, Naval Hospital in Balboa. What happens after that?
1: Uh, Sally locates him. He's in kind of a transitory barracks uh, pending additional treatment. They believe they were going to be doing, uh, they needed to do surgery or some kind of additional treatment. And it was the weekend. So he was staying down at Balboa uh so our agents identified him my understanding he was cooperative with both of them primarily with Sally um then the two of the team uh and it happened to be Jimmy Palacios detective Palacios and Tommy Franks uh both arrived you know traveling down from our area couple hour drive transit to uh, Balboa uh they contact Underwood and uh uh he voluntarily um Departs with them, leaves uh, the hospital and travels up to San Bernardino and specifically the sheriff's department headquarters where the homicide team is located, uh, where they interview him or begin the interview process uh, with him. So, again, it was simply he departed um, with the two detectives um, to head from San Diego up to San Bernardino. Bernardino. That was kind of Sally and Joel's involvement to, to identify him. You know, do our military protocol of you know, load, load, uh, identifying with the command uh, who we were and what they were doing. And then he voluntarily departed with the two detectives. He was not in custody at that point.
0: OK, very good. So. Um, so what is the, What do the detectives find?
1: When they started sure them- um, first thing. And I later saw that the, the uh, photographs, they photograph him head to toe. Uh, primarily the wound uh, and, and just him, um, his clothing, his shoes. Uh, he took all whatever gear he had, uh, personal clothing and items, um, and, and they transport him up there. They start the interview. Where it becomes, and one of the many legal issues we, we kind of had to, to work through is uh, during the process uh, of interviewing him, they identify him as a suspect, read him or advise him his Miranda rights. Um, at that, the point. Article 32B rights. Correct. Uh, now, thirty-one problem.
0: So, excuse me, thirty-one problem.
1: 30, yeah, uh, under the UCMJ. So this is under California law and uh, Miranda v. The state of Arizona. For those that don't know, the requirement if someone is detained or in custody, or now, if you will, terms we use, the focus of an investigation, uh, law enforcement officers are obligated to advise someone their legal rights. They don't have to speak, and they have the right to an attorney. Um, either to be present or to represent him. Uh, As the detectives were going through, they um, had advised him of his, uh, and and, uh, let me be clear. I'm not sure if they had advised him of his rights, but in the process of the interview, he asked for an attorney uh, a a significant number of times, and they continued to interview and an interrogation. And that later became uh, a legal issue that, uh, again, the district attorney, And the two detectives had to kind of work through uh, as it had, it was obviously related. (laughs) Was Uh, it one
0: of those deals where he's asking them, Hey, do I need to get an attorney? Uh, One of those kind of questions, or did he say, Hey, I want an attorney.
1: No, he was pretty clear. I've I've listened to the tape uh, again, many years ago. And and it was clear. He wasn't asking. He was saying, Hey, I I think I need to have an attorney president. I need to talk to an attorney. Mm -hmm. Uh, And they continued the interview. Uh, So a lot of that, as this comment, a lot of the information they obtained um, uh, from him um, wasn't admitted or wasn't uh, useful, you know, poisonous tree, you know, fruit of the poisonous tree kind of issues that we dealt with. Um, Mm -hmm. They had enough other information and and, then did other things. Uh, What he did say prior to asking for the attorney of, you know, the reference to how he cut his hand and those things we could pursue um, independently, uh, that were, uh, again, based on what we found or didn't find, uh, that were, were admitted, uh, during the trial and during motion hearings and things along those lines. Um, but that, that was issue. So he, he, uh, there was a fairly long interview, uh, notwithstanding these kind of legal issues. Uh, but they got enough of what his story or version of events was. I believe he placed himself at the apartment uh, but I think he uh, if I recall and bear with me uh, that he uh, 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 discovered that uh, I don't remember if he said that two girls were still alive or he had discovered them and, and kind of panicked and didn't know what to do and left. And it was somewhere between those. Uh, but a, a lot of his version of events was disjointed. Not consistent as the other two Marines were very specific about the, the chronology and kind of timeline and, uh, of the cur- and events that occurred. His was very disjointed, even to include how he injured or cut his hand. Um, so at this point, um, he is clearly the suspect, um, and uh, he is taken into custody uh, and booked into the county jail, uh, pending you know legal steps and his arraignment.
0: Okay. So the, uh, so, uh, he's in jail. So this is 1991 and you're saying this case goes on for several years, obviously. And, and if you look at, if you look at Valentine Underwood today, he's still going through court procedures and it's 2022. So, um, I, I find it interesting. So, um, kind of lay the the groundwork. We were talking the other day on the phone about some of the outside influences that were going on at the time of this particular case, specifically, you know, like things like the OJ trial were going on. So how did that impact this case?
1: Yeah, it was significant. Um, I think the OJ, and I, I apologize, if I don't remember the timeline of, uh, you know, the, that event down in Brentwood, but uh, prior to this, you know, standard thing, as you all know, most I think your listeners would be aware when someone is taking a cut, see you you run a, even something as simple as um, verifying fingerprints, <clears throat> NCIC and inlets and these kind of law enforcement databases. Um, and, and we determined that there appeared to be other criminal incidents out uh, in other jurisdictions involving Underwood. That was one aspect um, so we got uh, involved in that. One of these was uh, at his university, Lubbock Christian College in Lubbock, Texas, uh, where there was a, an, a, a potential uh, sexual assault type situation involving Underwood. Um, separately, I can go down that rabbit hole if you'd like, but uh, relative to the, uh, the OJ, uh, he was arraigned uh, in San Bernie Court. Linda Root was the assigned district attorney having been on scene and being one of their more um, uh, experienced prosecutors uh, in our local uh, uh, courthouse and uh, DA and sheriff's department substations. um, He was arraigned, held in custody based on uh, the murder of two young, young, young victims, young females. Um, That was another quick developing legal issue. Uh, as they were assigned uh, a a, a public defender, is uh, she was asked or forced to recuse herself based on uh, supposedly being more actively involved, uh, the, the inference that she was, you know, directing the detectives and involved in the crime scene search and things like that, right, wrong, or otherwise, that's the inference. So she recused herself, and the case was assigned to uh, a gentleman named Gary Bailey, another uh, deputy district attorney in the Barstow Office of San Bernie County District Attorney's Office. As things developed, Underwood is uh, at legal issues um, uh, declared classified as indigent, not having uh, resources. So the Public Defender's Office then takes on a contract attorney, gentleman by the name of Garrett Zellan. Garrett is out of the Los Angeles area very aggressive uh, uh, public defense defense attorney. And uh, he then takes on the case. uh, It starts dealing with numerous legal issues. Um, Anywhere from posse comitatus came up, uh, the recusal of Linda Root, uh, the potential of um, shifting jurisdictions because of uh, media coverage, uh, and then ultimately starts getting into issues that overlapped from the O.J. Simpson trial. Um, where there were similarities uh, uh the accused the suspect the, the defendant is an african-american athlete o.j simpson valentine underwood um there were two victims in both cases uh stabbing or knife wounds were involved with both victims um the issue of the bloody glove the issue of if you recall the uh, very i think high-end shoes that were supposedly there were bloody shoe prints belonging a uh, 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 They were trying to link shoes belonging to O.J. Simpson. We had a
0: battalion shoes. Yeah,
1: yeah, but high end Italian shoes. I remember pictures of him when he was a sportscaster and uh, him wearing allegedly the same shoes. We had a shoe impression in blood on our murder. What what later became the murder identified as the murder weapon. So you had a lot of parallel issues. There were cues, you know, Judge Ito was the presiding judge. Cameras in the courtroom, media. Uh, were they going to, you know, uh, sequester during these motions, you know, where there couldn't be uh, a public access things along those lines. That were a lot of parallels from OJ that we were then dealing with. Um, one of the first ones and Joel Gossett had to come testify at a motion hearing had to deal with posse comitatus, any of my testimony. And I testified probably at multiple uh, preliminary hearings. Uh, posse comitatus came up almost every time. Um, uh, so, uh, we dealt, uh, not just parallel legal issues that were going on in OJ, change the jurisdiction. If you recall, they changed the jurisdiction, uh, what from, uh, in LA court to Simi Valley, I believe we changed from, uh, our court and Joshua tree up to Barstow and the trial actually occurred in Victorville, all within the San Bernardino County, different cities in the city of, uh, of, uh, um, or the County, uh, San Bernardino County. So, so just for
0: background information, I mean, this was something that was at the time when we were NIS, um, because this is before the days of arrest authority Yes, so they, and we had, um, and we found ways to work cases uh, with locals and, you know, we, um, it, there were never any really issues with posse comitatus because we were all civilians, but it was always brought up and, and, mm-hmm. and I don't think it would, it would continue being brought up until the day we were given arrest authority. Uh,
1: Correct. And, uh, Correct. Yeah. And in this instance, you know, we, we could still apprehend military suspects we had under the UCMJ and Title 10. We could do that. But this was clearly a violation of the California Penal Code, Section 187, um, yeah. uh, homicide, murder. Um, uh, so and, and Flo, nor Joel, nor myself, nor Dan had anything to do with handcuffs, charging, apprehension or arrest. Uh, when he was uh, as placed into custody, um, it was in San Bernardino County Sheriff's uh, headquarters uh, when he voluntarily departed with the two detectives from Balboa uh, Naval Hospital up to San Bernardino. Um, I, I, I think fact, they, uh, seems
0: to me the only issues that we um, everything was done in the proper manner, um, you know, as far as we're concerned.
1: Absolutely. I got to know Joel after this case from other events uh, and work uh, very, at the time, very experienced, very savvy, uh, not just agent, but investigator. Uh, Flo was, I think, shoot, 18, 20 years on at the time and, and uh, again, savvy, knew the law, uh, never would step over boundaries. They both acted 100 percent accordingly within Title 18 of the U.S. Code, Title 10 of the U.S. Code and within the. Uh, law enforcement officers or peace officers operating under the california penal code um and you had to have that multi-jurisdiction we had to be there because if i recall you would know better lee i believe balboa was a is a federal facility and federal exclusive jurisdiction where the sheriff's department couldn't come in and arrest them uh couldn't even come contact them without our assistance and uh yeah. and uh,
0: Transfer of jurisdiction there.
1: Yeah. Absolutely, we dealt with that with uh, uh, in Pendleton again when we had Marines that had uh, civilian arrest warrants and uh, would go through the legal process as federal jurisdiction to be dealt with from uh, local authorities. Um, so we, we all knew that we did it nothing out of bounds. The detectives did nothing out of bounds, but it was these legal issues. Uh, And I think not just overlapping uh, issues that was going on with the OJ Simpson murder trial, uh, but then got into why our case went from August of 1991. I came back, uh, I transferred, I came back in 1996 um, uh, to testify at the actual jury trial. And we went, what, four and a half, five, five and a half years of uh, motion hearings. Yeah. I forget the number. I apologize. uh, Time and distance. Uh, it was uh, high twenties, low thirties. Number of motions that this gentleman, Garrett Zellin, uh submitted to the court: motions to dismiss, uh, things along those lines. Anywhere, posse comitatus was the most significant to us. Uh, jurisdictional issues, uh, DNA issues, uh, the 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 Miranda rights violation issues. Just on and on and on and on. Um, and those went in into the. Uh, preliminary, uh, hearings and, and motion hearings for, uh, again, a better part of, uh, five years. Um, so yeah, August of 91, I, I want to say I came back in September, October, November of 1996 to actually testify in front of a jury, uh, on this case and what my involvement was and the, the, the information the the shirt or the district attorney wanted from, from me. Uh, And if I can go, ultimately with his conviction and then sentencing, I think, took place in March, possibly April of 1997. So we we were going on almost six years from event um, homicide uh, investigation and then through numerous legal issues all the way to conviction and then sentencing um, of interest. And uh, it became the longest uh, criminal court in, and it might've been overcome. Uh, I, I left California in 96 and I, I, I haven't returned as far as the legal issues, but, uh, there, it was the longest criminal court proceeding in California jurisprudence, if you will. And that might've been overcome seeing that we're now what, 20, 24, 25 years beyond
0: well, you know, essentially, we've been all – we're, we're kind of – I mean, I'm sorry. I, I let us get all over the map here. But I wanted to go back to one thing in the crime scene that you guys found that was significant to this case and, and how it played a role in this case. The victims were both stabbed, and they were both stabbed a number of times. Can you go into that? Because uh, I think that's really interesting.
1: Absolutely. Uh, again, the Homicide Department uh, works in teens, uh, so as uh, – Sorry, okay. Pooch. barreling in from the backyard got spooked by a bird or something. Sorry, she's, a, she's a little... sorry no about
0: I'm here with my dog, too. He's 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 getting he's kind of getting itchy. He's like, when Can I go outside?
1: I've been scratching young Basil here, and she just came barreling in through her doggy door. So, sorry about that. Uh, you can edit that out, but uh, um, uh yeah, no, interesting fact. Uh, again, homicide department uh, detectives working in tandem, uh, Jimmy and Tommy. Were in, went from Balboa overnight, brought him back, interrogate them. Detect different detectives were now uh, in, in uh, at 29 Palms doing different leads and whatnot. Uh, another detective, I think from another team, because they were now pretty dispersed, uh, went to the uh, postmortem or the autopsy. Uh, we attended those with our you know uh, Marines that were fatalities uh, because we were a concurrent jurisdiction, of San Bernardino County. Um, uh, a coroner conducted most uh, if not all of our uh, uh, autopsies and, and so they did the same so a detective had been to the autopsy of both victims came in uh, as he was going to assist the eight, the detectives that were up at, at the base came into my office Dan Smith was there again a, a very seasoned agent young agent but for, I think we were uh, pretty aggressive <clears throat> Dan and I Dan was sitting in my office and the detective started describing the autopsy and uh, there were two significant things that caught him uh, and, he, and he was flipping through his notebook and said, yeah, it was interesting. Um, multiple stab wounds. Um, one of the wounds it was, I, I want to say, a, uh, a four, maybe a six inch bladed knife. Again, it was a kitchen knife. Uh, one of the wounds and it was a downward thrust through a chest cavity or something. I don't mean to be inappropriate. Um, a wound was actually eight inches in length and they could measure that. And the significance of that is that was a considered a powerful, powerful thrust or even with leverage of a uh, either really anger, angry uh, stab wound or a significant wound of someone very large. And again, this played into a, you know, a 6'6", 215 pound. And again, we're talking Marine Corps, 215 pounds, muscular, uh, young, um, whatnot. And the other aspect of that, and that was just kind of a brutality consideration. <laughs> Um, but the other thing that was significant was both victims were identified having 33 stab wounds and a specific number of, to both victims. And, and I vividly, Lee, as if I was this happened yesterday, uh, I was sitting in my desk, you know, good old metal desk, uncomfortable chair. And Dan was sitting <laughs> on the window of my office and our next we snapped our heads and looked at each other. And, and the detective didn't know why. Uh, I, I, I kind of we got through the conversation, immediately got on the phone and, and called our uh, the senior member who we know pretty well uh, from the park and rec department and, and asked him to uh, check the scorebook from all our basketball games. And the significant one was, as, as I kind of alluded to, uh, Underwood came in from a, another Marine that w- was on our team and that we knew well. And invited Underwood in. Asked our permission. We were kind of the player coaches. He didn't need to, but of course, he they were respectful of us. So when Underwood showed up to the first game, we were already in the season. We had jerseys with numbers, you know, imprinted numbers. He showed up with a similar jersey. Anyone who's played ball for a number of years, as we had at the time, you have different colored jerseys and, and uniforms and such. But he showed up with a, a similar colored jersey that we asked our team color. <clears throat> with the handwritten number 33 and Dan and I knew that and recognized that we asked, uh, uh, called the park and rec department. They verified he went through all our scorebooks and in a basketball game, you always put in the name of the player, their number and keep up with points and fouls and such. And, uh, uh, the gentleman, the park and rec director who would, you know, either referee or coordinate games knew us. And he said, yeah, Dave, 33 on this game next night, 33 next week, 33, 33. So we uh, asked him, and we recovered that book. Uh, It never became a specific issue, but uh, that's one of the issues I testified to uh, in front of the jury. Uh, And we weren't quite sure if that was counted. That would be pretty uh, gory, Uh, but it was (laughs) of interest uh, uh, that that was his ball number. We later learned, and the district attorney brought it up. Uh, His uh, idol, if you will, growing up uh, was Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, who wore 30 uh, his career, uh, I think with the Milwaukee bucks back in the day, uh, and then mm-hmm. later Los Angeles Lakers, um, Lou mm-hmm. Alcindor, and then, uh, his life conversion to, uh, to, uh, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar.
0: Mm-hmm. That's that was, that's pretty, that's pretty good, uh, evidence right there.
1: Pretty good evidence. Yeah. Pretty good evidence. Uh, and, uh, this was, uh, probably that Monday or Tuesday of that week now is, is he's placed in custody. Uh, It might've even been after the arraignment. Uh, He is clearly the suspect. They're dealing with DNA issues. Uh, They're dealing with significant uh, physical evidence and now testimonial evidence of these first two Marines and, and his teammates and things like that who show up with, you know, his injury uh in uh, the DNA aspect. But uh, this was our, you know, still within the first three, four five days of the investigation. But now the following work week, uh, as we're now all working and, and this detective just mentioned that. And um, and, and uh, we thought it was pretty significant.
0: <laughs> well, um, let's take a quick break uh, so we can uh, do a bathroom break. But I want to ask uh, before, after the break. Um, I want to talk about his background as far as his family life. I mean, it sounds like he had a fairly normal upbringing, but what, where is this, was there any psychological profile conducted on him regards with regards to his, uh, this aggressiveness towards women?
1: Well, there are two aspects, uh, both, uh, I guess both societal, my understanding, although like say, uh, mentioned briefly, his mother, uh, was, i understood a long time or career employee, the Smithsonian Institute. Uh, he had relatives that served in the military. He came from a, a reasonable background. My understanding, and I won't make any, I'm not a psychologist, and that's not my, my education or life experience background, is he didn't have a father figure. Um, I don't believe there was a father connected to him in, this, in the home. Uh, I, I don't remember any details, and it really didn't become overly relevant. Uh, as far as, you know, had a father passed away at a young life as a father, you know, not involved with the, the, him or the family, um, you know, those kind of aspects. Um, but for this and, and the kind of the transition from that, you know, parental, uh, you know, growing up perspective, um, he was a predator. Uh, how and why that became an issue, I don't know, Lee, um, but he absolutely was a predator both a a sexual predator and then obviously in this case uh, and and accusations of other cases, almost to the point of being a violent, uh, aggressive predator, Um, use of knives, his sheer size. He was an intimidating uh, uh, figure and and character. He was very polite with Dan and myself playing ball. Uh, We dealt with him uh, on other incidents. And that's the second part I'd like to transition into to answer your question. Um, uh, again, they said he was a good Marine, um, respectful, uh, did his job. Uh, you know, he, I believe he had graduated school, um, had a background. Yeah. People enlist in the military at all ages and in, from all backgrounds, but it, it gave the impression as we later learned and went through this, you know, four, five, six, seven year, um, uh, event, uh, is, was he hiding from something? And, and like say, the predatory aspect, there were two, two angles to that. And the second one, uh, besides, and it, that's my simplistic view, Lee, there wasn't a, a, a father or male figure, dominant male figure that, that, that raised him maybe not to be this predator, certainly a sexual predator. I don't think anything ever came up, uh, you know, a forensic psycho- psychological background of, you know, some uh, traumatic event as a child that led him down this path or, or whatnot. but but he was a, a a sexual predator and and at times could become aggressive. And that became evident from two issues. And I knew Valentine playing ball. We dealt with him on a previous sexual assault allegation where uh, he uh, was alleged to have uh, physically assaulted a female. She escaped from him. Um, I don't believe there was a weapon involved other than the the, the, uh, the physicality of it by his size and intimidation. Um, that never came to any kind of charges, but uh, the sheriff's department took that uh, 911 call. She got away and made a 911 call. So, Monday morning, another agent on a duty call, it happened to be Pete Garza, our Marine agent, um, mm-hmm. took the call. Um, was going to go down and and make uh, Underwood available for the the local detectives to talk to him. And that was our first instance of of knowing him from the criminal side of it. And this was uh, between our basketball season and obviously August 2nd. Uh, It became significant later uh, from a civil jurisdiction issue. Uh, But he was aggressive with her, uh, was just shy of sexually assaulting her, And she escaped or evaded him and and was uh, able to get to a payphone of all things that still existed and called 911. Um, But that's where we learned that maybe there was a different side to him um, before we even had the August incident. And and part of what I want to go to on the second part, the male or father figure, a role model, be it a coach, a teacher, um, neighbor, relative, whatever it might be that he didn't seem to have in his life. Um, There was an angle of uh, of narcotics involved. Um, We later learned the morning of excuse me, it would have been the afternoon or evening um, uh, related to August 2nd. uh, He had been out, um, I believe, uh, and the timeline is it gets a little fuzzy. Lee apologized. Uh, Basically, he'd ended up at a, a different location than than Rosalie's apartment. Uh, He had consumed cocaine that was validated by another young victim, female victim that we found. Um, And they were kind of in a distant, remote area. It went a trailer of all things. Um, And he had held a knife to her throat. Um, And this, they had both consumed cocaine. Um, She admitted that, uh, but he made sexual uh, advances towards her and she was declining them. And he actually got and held a knife to her throat. And this was, uh, I want to say, within a day or 24 hours of then the, the, the murder being discovered. Uh, so there was a strong belief under the influence of narcotics, whether that's he had, when he had committed, gotten back into town, if you will, and, and visited uh, Rosalie and Mandy. But there was a distinct, again, history that we identified. Uh, of aggressive sexual advances to the point of assault. And in some instances, uh, what I didn't mention before, I apologize in trying to be uh, considerate of our victims. They, they were both raped. Uh, they, they validated that through DNA and, and other forensic exams of the, the two young lady victims. Um, so we learned that he had a history of that. And like I say, I, I, I would have no issues from my background, uh, non-psychological, but from our history is and you know pretty uh experienced in the criminal investigators he was a predator he was a predator
0: Absolutely. and did he have a relationship with rosalie and uh, mandy scott before this incident
1: he knew of them he had been to the apartment before wasn't a boyfriend of anything but i think he had pursued one or both of them uh, I, I believe primarily mandy um and at the time underwood i want to say was 27 28 years old as a young marine lance corporal with a you know, year, year and a half in the core. Um, and Mandy was 15. Um, and when you, you know, I didn't know Mandy prior to this, but just pictures of her and, and getting to know her mother, uh, Debbie McMaster seeing, you know, pictures of them and, uh, you know, funerals and memorials and this and that seeing pictures. She didn't look much over 15. She looked like a young teenage, uh, female. Um, uh, and nowadays, you know, that changed, but uh, I don't think there was any question. She was under age uh, of someone who was 26, 27, 28 years, probably shouldn't pursue from a uh, relationship standpoint.
0: Well, it seems to me that, um, you know, that Underwood, um, it, when you guys talk about him being a sexual predator, there's a lot of evidence to that. Um, with uh, some prior, uh, preliminary uh, prior cases before he joined the Marine Corps, in the same time, uh, a lot of stuff that you found out since then. Uh, or since that time, during that seven-year time before he was uh, convicted um, of these murders and these these rapes and murders. Um, So can you talk a little bit about that as far as the leads that you guys ran?
1: Absolutely, yeah. In addition, we knew the one. I mean, we had, again, assisted. It was the local detectives. Uh, Donnie Miller uh, later became a sheriff's department captain. Uh, He was the detective on call when Pete picked him up. Uh, Pete Garza helped pick up Underwood to be interviewed. Uh, And that case was, uh, I want to say, June, June, July, maybe. So not too long before our our murder in August. As we jumped in the investigation and doing background investigations and stuff, we found a case in Maryland, Southern Maryland, uh, where he was accused of sexual assault with violence or aggression. Uh, And the one that's a little bit significant, that uh, all we'd learned from that one, it was never charged. He was never arrested in conjunction. And the victim uh, and that one, the young lady uh, quit cooperating with law enforcement uh, and even prosecution. So it never really developed. Uh, a more significant one was from his university, uh, Lubbock Christian College. Uh, I, at the request and uh, assistance to the district attorney and the sheriff's department, they asked and they know we had agents all over the country, literally all over the world, uh, asked if we could pursue a lead uh, to contact authorities in Lubbock uh, and our um with the university um, and find out about an, an incident that appeared to be discovered you know, when he was in, matriculating in college. Uh, interesting part I, I, uh, we discussed might've been Harry Harry Richardson, um, but uh, an investigator, one of our counterparts agents in uh, the Dallas area, uh, our resident agent or resident unit in Dallas, uh, got our lead, went to the university, contacted the university, and visited with, I wanna say it was a Dean of Student Affairs, Dean of Student Services, Um, and from, uh, had a file. And now this is, uh, let's call it late August, maybe September, even October of 1991, had a file on record, uh, you know, paper file um, from an event in 1986. And the fact that this uh, executive, if you will, or senior place member of the university still had this file uh, on Underwood, where uh, it was a young visiting group of high school students, athletes, volleyball, basketball players, that interacted with the the, the athletes from Lubbock Christian College, mm-hmm. and for Underwood. We're under. We're Underwood. I know. So, <laughs> you want to take a break? Uh, <laughs>
0: do you t- do you need to take care of that? <laughs> I think
1: it's I think it's just someone walking by. Uh, oh, okay. on and there I, was
0: was it probably. it's always fun to have dogs barking in the background
1: dogs in the background yeah she she's on duty she's on uh, so yeah so maybe she'll run back out <laughs> sorry days you're good you're okay but uh th- that this uh and, and the, the 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 dean uh was cooperative there were two aspects was said hey you're more than welcome to have our file and uh, a documented event um but wanted a uh, court order or subpoena and the district attorney facilitated that and we eventually got this report where he was clearly accused very similar to mandy you know a young high school student female high school student that he cornered if you will and uh, and assaulted and the one uh, other aspect of that is that the dean said you know this should have been referred to law enforcement our agent being thorough and professional went out and con- t- contacted the local authorities uh, who ran criminal history checks. They had no other files, uh, and they were didn't have any documentation of this one incident because it was kind of held close hold by the university, which was probably maybe more common than it needed to be back in those days, uh, certainly in the mid-80s, where they didn't want to bring any undue uh, bad attention to the university, or in this case, an athletic program or an athlete, but uh, should have been referred to law enforcement. The dean acknowledged that, wasn't. But we got hold of that case and it just was an, uh, another event um, that, that made him look like a predator. We are now pursuing, you know, four cases. And I, I think, as you and I have discussed, it, 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 I guess there's continuing uh, criminal litigation um, from cases as well after his conviction and incarcerated in the state prison system in California. And I believe uh, you and I talked about back in Massachusetts. Um, he, he, clearly, other cases came up. If I recall, when I departed and at this case ran its course, so we're now in the 97, 98 time period, uh, there was another civil legal issue. We can cross that bridge if you'd like. Uh, but what I later learned is there was a, it, and this is where Wayne Rollins, one of our our, our colleagues and brethren, uh, they were pursuing whether or not he had committed um, other assaults and um, almost uh, uh, serial killing type, serial sexual assault type issues, uh, being, uh, you know, he traveled across the country growing up in Maryland, but now is signed in uh, 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 California, but also traveled to the Middle East uh, during the Desert Shield, Desert Storm time period. Um, I don't know of any cases that that actually developed other than what you've referred to in Massachusetts. Uh, goes back to I, I, he, he was a predator. Uh, what in his life led to that? I don't know. Uh, we didn't pursue that from a, the the legal standpoint uh, for trial to not cause any additional legal issues that we were dealing with for what those six years. Um, but uh, there was enough physical, uh, testimonial, uh, and, and scientific evidence that uh, he was convicted, pretty straightforward, and then sentenced to uh, what in in California. Penal Code LWOP life without possibility of parole based on the double murder and what they call special circumstances. So he will not get out of the California prison system, other than if there's a, a, a change of uh, legal jurisdiction where someone else wants to convict him in the state of California, transfers him to another state to be incarcerated.
0: Yeah, it's almost as if they uh, transferred him to Massachusetts right now to undergo this trial. Mm-hmm. That he's going through, but he's still he's still on the hook for those two double for that double murder. And for the two life sentences that he'll serve in California. So yep. it's a very interesting, very uh, fascinating case. So, um, you know, this case has been has obviously um, made the course through the media. Um, it was on the Discovery Channel um, and, and it's always there's a book written about it now called 29 Palms um, it, it, that the, the, I know the author attempted to interview you, but um, they uh, did not. and. and I've written a couple of articles in the San Diego Union, Washington Post um, about the author in this particular and kind of her slant on on this and um, and kind of the indictment of the Marine Corps. They don't take care of their um, civilian uh, members, meaning family members. Um, so I don't know if that's true. I, I know the Marine Corps does an extraordinary amount today to try and ensure that families are protected, through the family advocacy program through um, the uh, sexual assault response coordinator. I mean, certainly the military criminal investigating organizations have all gone through an examination over the past few years. And we are where we are now. And I know that uh, that domestic violence and um, sexual assault are certainly the two priorities in the office that I'm currently assisting um, in. The, in <laughs> There's it's, it's an ongoing problem. It's going to continue being a problem. I'm not sure how they're going to solve it, but uh, they are doing an extraordinary amount of work to try and make it make life better for Marines and their families.
1: So oh, no question. And this is maybe, you know, not just this case, but uh, events from uh, you know, our time, 9091 desert shield, desert storm going mm-hmm. through then what Ira- uh operation enduring freedom and operation Iraqi freedom. Maybe highlighted by uh, uh, the, the suicides uh, resulting from that and the, the PTSD and trauma that uh, the mem- military members uh, dealt with but also I, I think a learning factor going from you know the early 90s to then now uh, what we just left Afghanistan uh, was it when just over a year ago so you know now 2020 2021. Um, and they're present there with the military members present there almost 20 years, um, or over 20 years. Um, but the the impact, positive or negative, uh, to family members and those uh, uh, who re- remain behind uh, while they're in. in uh, side note, but re- uh, through some family reunions with my dad's Marine Corps squadron from their their Vietnam War days. Running into young Marines celebrating Marine Corps birthdays up in Las Vegas, and I remember talking to these two young Lance Corporals in dress blues, sharp young uh, young man, and this is you know oh five oh six oh seven time period, um, where they had already deployed uh, two, three, and then four times, uh, and you know young young Marines, but uh, the rotation of the military through Iraq, through Afghanistan, uh, and the impact to members. But then I think the impact of families, loss of income, loss of the spouse, men, men and women. Um, and I think the the military is still uh, working through that. Even now, you know, what we're 31 years later from the incident you and I are discussing. Uh, I think these are significant, you know, Veterans Administration and, and as you said, family service issues. Um and from our history, we probably have too many incidents to talk about, but where, where commanders uh, recognize that it's, it's not just families, but the kids that, yeah. that become, uh, I, I hate to use the word victims, but they, they, there's a victim aspect. They lose a, the presence of a, a parent, uh, whether it's a single parent or how many military families that have both members, both father and uh, mother uh, that are military members and, and the, the op tempo and the, the deployments and uh, the separation. Uh, and I think it's, yeah, it's uh, again, military is working through it. Operational readiness is pretty critical. Um, but I think part of that is if a, if a member is distracted because of family issues, dependent issues, their children being sick or whatever the case may be, uh, that's a deterrent to that member uh completing the mission and doing their job. So I think yeah. the military still working through that Lee and uh, it's a developing and that's a tough, uh, that's a tough egg to crack though. Um, you know, we've, we have, I have that experience. How many birthdays, anniversaries, children's birthdays have we missed in our time? So uh, it's a reality uh, of uh, the work the military does and even in our business.
0: Yeah. I think that they're, uh, you know, they're, uh, you're exactly right. I think, uh, I think from, from, in the last few years, um, the amount, just the tempo of activity, of um, you know, in the in the two thousands, uh, all the way up, and you know, just a couple of years ago, as you said, a year ago, and we pulled completely out. The um, I think the now we're dealing with kind of the aftermath, the the flow, the the you know, the senior members are now getting out, the new members coming in, and it's you know, it's moms and it's dads not knowing how to be dads mom's not knowing how to be moms. And so, you know, you see, certainly get a lot of cases like that, but, but nothing like this particular case. I mean, this is a unique case with Valentine Underwood, and I really appreciate you coming on podcasts again to talk about this case. Cause I found it was, was going to be an interesting story when we finally got back together. And I appreciate you contacting, reaching out to me and saying, Hey, let's, uh, let's see if we can get this thing on. I'm, I'm so happy that you did that, man. I appreciate
1: it. No, I appreciate the opportunity to talk about it. I think it plays right in. Yeah, we're talking, you know, 31 years ago, 32 years ago from 1990 and 91. And of course, resulting, not resulting, but then develop into this murder case and the the loss of two young ladies, a 20 year old and a 15 year old. But uh, as we kind of discussed in his psychology and his upbringing, and as you just mentioned, transition into the wars and uh, military conflicts, whether it's ISIS in Syria or just deployments, day to day deployments. Um, what the impact of that is. And, you know, I think having a, a strong family unit that supported um, uh, kids, wives, husbands, grand, grandparents, you know, the, 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 the extended family, not just the nuclear, but the extended family. Um, and uh, there is an aspect of this because of that incident where, with the, with the dr- drugs and look what's going on, whether it's, you know, I won't get into, you know, the marijuana how many States are, uh, you know, legalizing marijuana. The president, I think is coming on executive order potential of, uh, 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 of judic, not what sort of, uh, um, commuting sentences, federal sentences of anyone, just what possession of marijuana things along those mm-hmm. lines. Um, but where the substance abuse issues, whether I don't want to get into the southern border, but uh, the fentanyl issue and uh, the heroin, we would, uh, in my days and on the job dealing with, uh, you know, heroin overdoses, Uh the addition of fentanyl into this stuff where, where, you know, these societal issues that then play off and, and we had to deal with from a criminal investigative standpoint, but that that are just uh, develop and morph, you know, might have been marijuana or cocaine back in when you and I were on duty but has developed into methamphetamine, MDMA, legalized marijuana and now this fentanyl issue, which is just scary, scary, scary stuff. But, uh, and it's, it's an issue ahead. for
0: the Marine Corps for sure. I mean, I, I know that, I mean, there been, there were a number of deaths due to fentanyl on Marines, active duty Marines this past year. I mean, <clears> the, <throat> the statistics are there and, you know, it's going back to the, uh, to the family unit, you know, it, it, gone are the days that when you and I were young investigators in the early nineties, when the commandant came out and said, if, you know, if, if we wanted Marines to be married, we would have issued the, the wife, you know, I mean, that, that was the kind of the way the thinking was at that time.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. And I, which it may be the same commandant, but talking about, you know, uh, getting diversity in the, in the force, but wanting, uh, you know, uh, single young men, um, to be young Marine officers. Um, you know, yeah, like you say, not just the families, but, uh, to try to compete with the, those that wanted to be doctors and lawyers and engineers uh, to have a competent and well-qualified uh, officer corps. Um, so yeah, there's a, uh, that's tricky and nowadays, yeah, but I, I think this, is a, this case is a, a good or bad or potential uh, um, evidence of, again, you have to have a strong family unit. And uh, I feel for his family, his mother, we never interacted with her. Uh, my understanding that the the sheriff's department did and the, the district attorneys, uh, and I feel sad for the mother who's, who's now, you know, has a son that, uh, you know, a child that has, has turned into this and having to deal with these, those emotions and, and issues over and over and over again from, uh, you know, what we uncovered or discovered about, uh, Underwood. Yeah.
0: That's, that's so true. So true. Well, Dave, man, I appreciate it. sounds like a good place for the train to pull into the station and everybody jump off. So I really appreciate you coming on the show today. And uh, we will uh, hopefully, uh, if you have another uh, interesting case, uh, you can come back on and talk some more. Or just come on and talk anyway.
1: Something yeah, absolutely. Fun- yeah, we do it. It's uh, You know, I remember you go back to the old agents, no, great place to leave it. But uh, some of the old agents that probably, uh, whether they were mentors or just ones we overlapped with or learned from, uh, but it's an uh, interesting development. And I, I used to say in my latter years from, you know, my carrier Simon on, uh, you know, that 11, 12, 15 year mark, even of, you know, Hey, I wouldn't be hired today. Uh, you know, dealing with these, uh, the post nine uh, 11, hiring binge and where were people with masters and <laughs> JD juris doctorates, um, uh, f- unbelievably talented, educated, um, driven young folks, um, but the one aspect, and I, I never, you know, I always tried to mentor or if people ask a question, I'd be more than happy to discuss it, but I didn't want to get in their way. Um, sometimes there's an aspect of what you and I talked about, the Steve Kale rule, <laughs> grab your notebook, get in your K car and, and go out the door. We're kind of uh, <laughs> used to joke. We were we were gumshoes. You know, you yeah. get out, you talk to people, um, did a, a side note, but a job interview, an online job interview. Everything's remote and God bless technology um but where we can talk to people and the one thing you know uh, i was a a went to national fire academy with a young lady by the name of kathy clements um (laughs) and learning uh you know uh fire scene investigation Mm -hmm. is uh to not only eliminate a cause of a fire um but um all aspects of of an investigative process Mm -hmm. and 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 part of that in, in going back to a you know a cv if you will of uh, what was our expertise as young agents is is talking to people. You know, people you know, I'm not a crime scene expert. I'm not a psychologist. I'm not a lawyer. Uh, I don't have 20 years experience as a homicide detective. But the one thing you and I did from and Kathy did from our early days is just talk to people and and the the, the dramatic benefit that had uh, in a complicated investigation like Underwood was or the most simple, you know, that person did it and they admitted it. And here we go. Yeah. Um, but uh, we, we just had such vast experience in interviews and, and just talking to folks from all walks of life. Uh, yeah. And in this job interview, you talked about, you know, mit- anywhere from meeting, you know, excuse me, First Lady Barbara Bush after the Gulf War to, you know, all the way to dealing with ambassadors and senior political officials and four star admirals. Uh, all the way down to uh, you know a young PFC or Navy E2 Seaman Apprentice uh, that's never left their hometown, other than boot camp and the, the ship or they're on or the yeah. the, the patch of de- desert they're standing in. So, um, uh, interesting aspect. And I always try to put, lay that down to, or onto these young agents that <clears throat> could do research around, <clears throat> do circles around me. But um, the benefit we had from that and. Hopefully this kind of interaction, uh, whether they're old farts that just want to re- relive our days or um, <laughs> young folks that listen to this. And I, I had one of my young uh, agents that worked for me that listened to our first uh, podcast uh, and she reached out to me um, after the fact. Uh, so hopefully there are agents still on duty that, that listen to this, that are part of your audience. Um, I, I try to give you thumbs up and five stars every chance I can. Um, hopefully there's some value to not just talking about an old case, but uh, um, that, that somebody can learn from and what to look for to avoid this kind of act, uh, you know, this kind of incident from happening in the future.
0: Yeah. Well, I'll tell you, it's a, as I've always said, I learned more from my dad who was a traveling salesman and then, and, uh, you know, it, it, to help me get through those times when I need to talk to a young E1 or E2, all the way up to an 06,
1: 07. So mm-hmm. Absolutely.
0: We, we learn a lot um, from exactly what you're talking about. We, we went out, like Steve Kell says, get your notebook and jump in the K car. And, uh, and go out and do those interviews, man. Get up behind the, get up. Well, when we first started, I think it was kind of like, get out from behind the, the typewriter.
1: <laughs> yeah. 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 I mean, yeah yeah <laughs> uh, you know, mine weighed about forty pounds, so luckily I couldn't move it. certainly <laughs> couldn't take it in the field with us, but uh it
0: was a significant a significant piece of office furniture <laughs> uh, uh,
1: absolutely and that, it, again but uh to that point of the, they were all our databases and report writing systems and even the you know pay in pay uh, and systems nsps we, we dealt with for what a year or two. Um, there was an it, incident towards the end of my career, maybe you did or did the experience there or not, of we were locking our agents behind computers um, and, and get, get out and talk to people, you know, um, learn who the sergeant majors and the command master chiefs are and uh, be able to go talk to your commanders, whether, they, you know, hey, you probably went to school with someone that you don't realize or at least to the same university and have a common ground. Um, I'll tell you a side note, and I'll, I know you want to wrap up here. I appreciate all your time. I really enjoyed th- th- these conversations. One of the things I did, and I don't know if someone taught it to me, um, I just picked it up. I member used to have an old, I, I, I probably still could dig it up. And it was a list of the uh, three starting digits for social security numbers for all 50 states. And I want to say, I know Hawaii was on there. I want to say Puerto Rico. So 50 in, in one territory. Mm-hmm. Um, but. I, and you learn the big ones, so many kids from Florida, California, Texas, and, and so remember what young agents, we have our little interview interrogation log and you start with their name ranked social date of birth, whatever tattoos, blah, blah, blah. And I just learned or picked up learning the three digits, whether someone was from Illinois or Florida or Texas, and, and tried to ingratiate because most, I don't care if it was a 18 year old PFC or a 28 year old staff sergeant. Most people kind of uncomfortable and nervous to come talk to us, savvy or experienced as they might be, and finding something that, that uh, uh, Mike March used to talk about the, the uh, um, ingratiating yourselves tone, but uh, the rapport building uh, rapport based interviews and interrogations vice, you know, anything other than that. And, uh, Mm -hmm. something as simple as that. And I keep that, kept that piece of paper with me for most of my 30 years. And I bet I still have it somewhere, but that was a little trick I learned or someone taught me, um, to get started with someone to kind of just relax them and and make sure they would talk to me.
0: Dave, those are good points, man. I appreciate you coming on the show. And, uh, let's, uh, let's get together soon again. Dave Hertberg, everyone, this is the man, uh, who did a, a fantastic case on the Underwood case. Uh, what, a, what an amazing case that was. Good
1: job. Thank you very much, Lee. Really appreciate the opportunity to talk about this.
0: All right, we'll talk to you soon, man. Take care. Cheers, brother. Hey, thanks for listening to the NCIS Reports from the Phil podcast. Really enjoyed bringing this show to you. If you like what you heard today, please go to your favorite podcast service. Do me a favor, like, subscribe, and give me the five-star rating. Giving me a five-star rating helps me keep the show going, and I want to keep this show moving along. I want the the History Project to do what I intended to do, to tell the history of the organization one career at a time. So if you can do that, that'd be great. I appreciate you listening. Listen, if you want to continue the conversation, and I'd love to do that, send me an email at ncispodcast at yahoo.com. That's ncispodcast at yahoo.com. Thanks for listening, everybody. And we'll see you next week with another interesting guest who will tell their story. Until then, stay safe, everybody.